There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't know anyone in our society at the moment who can actually put their hand on the heart and go, I know no one with mental health issues. I, I think it's ridiculous. So why are we still having all these issues and why can't we just be more open about it and go, hey, let's deal with this, folks. That is psychiatrist Mark Cross, and this is episode 179 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. This is episode 179 of the show. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this episode, this episode is with Dr. Mark Cross. Find him on Twitter at Dr. Oh, sorry, at DRM Cross, Dr. M Cross, DRM Cross. More about Dr. Cross in a moment. Thanks so much for being here. If you're new, welcome to the show. Please, please subscribe to the show to make sure it pops into your uh, phone each and every week. Uh, and do show another person how to do it too, because that really, really helps me out. If you can recommend the show to someone or show them how to put it on their phone, uh, hit subscribe on there, just put it in their podcast downloads week, pick one of your favorite episodes and, and just download one episode they can listen to it. That would that would do me a massive, massive favor. It really helps when you do that. I see the numbers. It really works. So thank you to everyone that's already doing that. You can support the show in other ways. You can also get exclusive episodes as well. Uh, I've... Uh, you can do that on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osho, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Osho. You can get exclusive episodes. The one out right now is with Lindsay McDougall. Um, but I've just added a new tier where you can get exclusive episodes. And I will say thank you on the show for you bringing the show, like an actual credit. This show brought to you by, and I will say your name here on the show. So uh, check that out, patreon.com slash Osho. If you feel the show brings you any value through the week, Please consider donating or just pledging some of your money, at least, you know, the, the cost of a fancy cup of coffee once a month 
we'll uh, we'll do it. Thanks for all the podsies this week. I really appreciate these. Some really great pictures coming in. Just whip out the phone you're listening to this on right now. Take a photo with it and send it to me. Sandosharemail at gmail.com or tag me on Instagram or Twitter or wherever. It's a fantastic way for us all to get to know each other and hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. Just take a photo of whatever you're looking at. Um, I got a great, great view of some traffic jams this week, which was awesome. I'm grateful that I can help you through the traffic in your part of the world. Uh, thank you very much for everyone who's given me well wishes for getting running again. Uh, it's been good. I'm up to about 6.6Ks now. I started out at just under four, three and a bit. Um, so yeah, that's within 10 days. I've managed to just increase my running by five or 10% distance every, uh, every day. And that's where I am already. My hip sucks a bit. Um, having to spend about as much time stretching as I've done running. So like if I run for half an hour, I have to stretch for half an hour at least, but that's okay. It's working out. Um, but once again, I'm not seeing the benefits in my you know, waistline at all just yet. I'm not seeing i'm not jiggling any less when i go over speed bumps but i do feel 200 percent better between the ears absolutely the effects on my brain and my general headspace are profound and immediate and um that alone is enough to keep me going keep me doing it um the more i run the better it feels um, I notice very much if I miss a day, I'm already at the point where if I miss a day, I, I feel myself get quite agitated. And, you know, when I think about it, I wasn't running every day and so I was walking around feeling agitated. Now I know why. I'm also trying to meditate on most days. Uh, Rich Roll recommended that I use the uh, Headspace app, which is actually really easy. You just put the headphones in, hit play and go. Um, it's actually been pretty good. So I'm enjoying that. So... Between everything, uh, also Audria has been very good in guiding me into drinking less coffee, so I'm, I'm drinking less coffee, uh, which is good. Um, between all of that, the less coffee, the running, the meditation, um, and after talking to my two doctors about it, I managed to come down on my meds a little bit more, so from 100 milligrams down to 75 milligrams, and that's, that's nice because I was on 125, so I'm on two-thirds of what I was on. Uh, so I'll just sit here at this lower dosage and see how things go. If you've never taken meds every day for, uh, managing, a, uh, your mental health, um, there's great benefit for being on meds. They really help out and they really allow life to be a lot easier. Um, and you tend to find yourself reacting to things as you see other people reacting to things rather than in terror, which is nice, but they come with side effects. And one of those is weight gain and, um, general meh about everything uh so it's nice to be able to feel the world a bit more but again i tread very carefully into this world of feeling the world a bit more because when i feel the world a bit more it um it uh it can be difficult i actually um had a had a very rough week i hope your week was okay but i had a very very rough week someone that i knew very very well uh died we worked together for many, many years and he wasn't much older than me, um, maybe eight years, maybe 10 years older than I was. 
and uh, it's really uh, it's really horrible. Um, I'm sure you've had friends that have died, and it, it sucks because you get a text message from someone that you both know, but you know don't keep in touch with that often, and you go, "Why is this person texting me?" And you open it up, and it says, "I need to talk to you about such and such." And straight away, you know. And I called my friend, I called her, and, and I said, when did it happen? And she said, oh, so you know. I said, no, I don't know, but you would never talk to me. I mean, you would, I know exactly what that text message means, you know. And it's, it's, it's fucking awful, man. Um, he was the nicest, nicest guy. He was my floor manager on Australian Idol, and... Um, what that person's job is, is they are the contact between the person on camera and everything else in the crew and everyone in the control room, everyone on, on the floor, everyone on the set. And the only reason that we were able or I was able to, to do the kind of television that we ended up doing was because he was a solid, solid rock and I trusted in him. I trusted in him completely, and by trusting in him completely, and you just end up making really great telly because it's kind of like if you're abseiling. He's the guy holding the belay rope. If you don't trust him, you're gonna have a terrible time. But if you trust him, you or if you're rock climbing, you, you, you know, think about the person who's holding the rope that'll help stop you from falling. The one down the bottom holding the rope. If you commit to a move and you go for it, you trust them completely, they'll catch you if you fall, you pro you'll probably grab the move. But if you worry that they're gonna, not going to catch you, you, you probably won't go for it. So because he was so good, it allowed us on camera to just be fearless. And it's really, really sad. It's really, really sad that he's, that he's gone. Um, it is a thing that every single one of us has in common. The flaming lips had it right. Everyone you know someday will die. You'll die. I'll die. My wife will die. My dog will die. Everything dies. Every one of us will die. And sometimes we go, oh, yeah, well, you know, good innings. I think that's the goal, isn't it? Get to somewhere where when they hear you're dead, someone says, eh, good innings. That's a good innings. I think if you get in the 80s, you start getting that. But this guy, he was not much older than me. And it was, uh, he died very soon, too soon. And it's, uh, it's very sad. Um, when I heard about it, I, uh, I, I called the people that I needed to call to let them know. And then I went for a run um, because I know that makes me feel better. And on the run, I strangely found myself shouting out into the night. I was running through a park, you know, across a football field that nobody was on in the dark. 
you know, so I was all alone in the middle of this football field and I found myself screaming in anger into the night. And I was talking to someone afterwards and like, it was really weird. I was running and I was angry and shouting. And he said, yeah, that's okay. That's anger is part of the grieving process. Oh, I didn't realize that, but I was really angry for a little bit. It was like a couple of minutes, but I was really mad that he's dead. Um, anyway, the funeral's this week. Um, I haven't heard yet. I don't know where it's going to be. Or... We'll see how we go. Anyway, hug the people that you love this week, please. Shoot out a text to the people you know who are struggling. Ask them if they're okay. Ask them if you can talk to them. Pick up a phone, talk to somebody. It could make a big difference. Um, sorry to bum you out. But I thought I'd just share that with you. Um, let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Mark Cross is a psychiatrist. He's an author. He's a television presenter. And he is uh, one of my fellow board members at SANE Australia. Uh, Dr. Cross, for many years, ran the youth ward at Campbelltown Hospital in Sydney. However, he's moved on from that to focus on a few other things. He's best known in Australia for his SBS TV show, Changing Minds, which was shot at the Campbelltown Hospital. And he worked very hard and still works very hard to destigmatize community attitudes towards mental illness. And he produced a book of the same name uh, for people who've been diagnosed and family and friends of people who've been diagnosed, or even if you're just curious about, you know, you hear that someone's got schizophrenia, but you don't know what it is and you're afraid of it. Um, it's a great, it's a really great book. I'm, um, Mark and I sit on a board together at SANE Australia and um, SANE Australia works very hard to help more than 4 million people in Australia who are affected by a complex mental illness. Now, what is a complex mental illness? Well, that includes OCD, borderline personality disorder, bipolar, PTSD, eating disorders, and schizophrenia. Yeah, you hear that if someone's been diagnosed with one of them, you know, the general attitude is, ooh, that's not good. Well, that's what we're hoping to try and change. I'm very grateful to be a part of the board there, and I, I really relish working alongside Mark and other board members there to help change attitudes in our society about complex mental illness and really help show people that a diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean that you're a danger to yourself or, or to others and that with the right work in the right direction that without a doubt a rich and full life is absolutely available for you. Mark has a fascinating story. I'm really grateful he took the time to speak with me and indeed to be so open with me. Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about when we get there. So come and sit and enjoy uh, as Mark and I pick away at the very last remaining bits of catering left after a board meeting uh, up in a, a boardroom in this kind of shared office complex in Paddington on a beautiful Sydney chilly autumn afternoon with myself and Dr. Mark Cross. How are you, Mark? Hi. I'm <laughs> fine, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, I'm happy I'm happy that we're both here. Um, we are in a uh, in an empty boardroom strewn with the coffee cups and empty glasses of a long board meeting. Was it long? Yeah, it was long and there's not wine glasses. 
<laughs> I don't know if that makes a more successful board or not. Uh, but, yeah, we sit on the board of, uh, of Sane Australia, which is exciting. And um, I've wanted to talk to you on this show for since I met you, actually. Um, and so I'm grateful we could do this. Oh, it's always great talking to you. And it's great talking <laughs> to you with big – it's quite a big mic, I have to say. Well, look, you know, <laughs> it's not how big your mic is, Mark. <laughs> It's what well, you do with it. <laughs> Obviously, I got too close to it there. Okay. No, no, no. Don't, don't even worry. My, my audio producer will sort out any levels. Andy, uh, Andy is, is, is very, very good. Now, um, when uh, I moved to America, people would hear my voice and go, where are you from? Where, where is that from? Like, sometimes they would, if I did an American accent, they thought I was from Iowa or some of them thought that I was from Maine. Um, but... I had to admit that I was Australian. Where does your accent come from? I love Americans. I love accents. But if you live there a long time, they want you to sound like them. They do. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. I ended it? up having to do it because otherwise you end up saying everything twice and it gets really boring. So just to answer your question, I was born in South Africa. So I spent my formative years there, left when I was about 25 and emigrated to England, London. So that was end of 92, beginning of 93 and spent 14 years living there and then moved to Australia 12 years ago. And now you're here. And now I'm an Aussie, yes. I've been to South Africa a few times now. So fabulous country. What part of the country did you grow up in? I have to say, you know, my heart is always in Africa. It's a very hard thing. People say identity and identity identity is so interesting. And you'll know about this having lived in America as well. I identify as Australian, but as I say, my, my heart's there and my intellects maybe in England, but anyway. So the Eastern Cape, Port Elizabeth, East London, sort of boring flat bit that was 1820 settlers, which is most of my background, the English English background that I have in South Africa. Right. And what do you remember about South Africa as a kid? I mean, everyone has a, probably an idea of, of what South Africa like must have been like at that, that time in history. What do you remember about it? I was there, well, I graduated in 1990. And I was there when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. So I was one of the onlookers who touched his hand as he went past. Really? And I was at his uh, big speech in the square. So it was pretty amazing. I was 25. What do you remember about the, the day? Like this is like before the internet. Like how did you, everybody organise to get in the same space at the same time? Did you call each other up with their posters on the streets? How did you know? Uh, mine was a bit of word of mouth. But it was quite well known. And obviously in the press leading up to this, because um, I don't was it then, I think it was afterwards that the then Prime Minister F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela won the Nobel Peace Prize. So, you know, this had been, this was the major event in South African history. And it was a very exciting time to be in South Africa, by the way. So between 1990 and 94, when they held the first freedom elections, you had all these old statutes on the books, but they weren't being enacted and it was, it, it was the most amazing amazingly hopeful, optimistic time. And is that what, I mean, I guess a lot of people would have been quite frightened about the change that was happening in the country. I mean, I don't really think in in modern history there's something that's quite as, I mean, the thing that I could not believe about having, I first went to South Africa four years ago and then I just went again a few weeks ago. I can't believe that the country is only 22 years since reunification. You know that that it wasn't that it didn't fall apart completely, that it didn't fail, that that 
everyone kind of kept it together enough. Sure, it's got its problems, but everyone kept it together enough that it's still running is just extraordinary. Like you've seen other changes of power in history and, you know, states fail completely. Like that that happened is, is remarkable. A lot had to do with my next best person in the world, second to Nelson Mandela's Archbishop Tutu. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's a wonderful man. And he formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So you've got these old grizzled Afrikaans, uh, head of police and whatever, you know, who were involved in horrendous atrocities under white apartheid South Africa at a tribunal with mothers and wives of activists. That's the air conditioning making Of that activists noise. that were beaten and, and sometimes killed. Disappeared. And everyone just crying. And not that it's, you know, complete payback or, but it, it, went, it went a long way. Uh, one of the most evocative images of the time was uh, and one international press photograph of the year. So the Afrikaans, the Afrikaans resistance movement rallied its troops and at the, on the eve of the change. And they actually invaded one of the independent homelands um, with guns and, you know, off they went. And they were repulsed by the Homeland's National Guard and a couple of them were killed. And you would have thought that would have been a catalyst and impetus to further uprisings and, and bloodshed. And no, it was absolutely squashed and there was no more, no more bloodshed after that. Full on. And so... Even at that hopeful time, that incredibly hopeful time, you decided to you decided to leave and found your way way to the UK. What was in the UK? You know, it was a wonderful time, but I had my own issues that I needed to address, uh, and that is being gay. So, and of course, it was Nelson Mandela was the most forward-thinking, progressive man until he. Uh, so, in 1990, until 1990, for instance. Homosexuality was still illegal in South Africa. It was still considered a medical illness. And it was not something that helped me come out being yeah. a doctor and, and someone who was identified as gay. And so part of going to England was just to explore that, even though it was a very exciting time in South Africa. You, know, you need distance from your past and things like that and I think that's in hell who, who doesn't want to travel so yeah it was what you know it was a whole lot of confluence of things and off but we, I talk, went. we talk now about why it's important that you can't be what you can't see and that it's important to have diversity in the media and important for um, you know uh, young people of, of every uh, ethnicity and every gender to see other people like them Pe- people very close to me who who are gay have known since they were five, since they were four. They just knew that something was different. What was it like growing up with this society-wide idea that what was happening to you was uh, against the law? It must have been horrible. Of course, it's, it's similar to, to Australia. You know, you have this really masculine culture. And when we were growing up, we all had to contemplate as young white guys going to the army. So we had national service after school, so I was dreading that. Um, by the time I, you, you went to university and you can get uh, out of it. Um, and then by the time I graduated, I was supposed to go and do it, but as I said earlier, nothing was enacted. So you had the draft of 1990 just not bothering to go and nothing happened. So 
So it was pretty amazing. So I can't say, oh, you know, I resisted and ended up in prison like some of my friends did, but also had to deal with anxiety about who I was. I was very aware from an early age that I was different. Um, but again, not uncommonly, we had an idyllic childhood in some respects. You know, uh, it was like the old days in the 1950s. We didn't have television until the mid-70s, quite rightly. The apartheid government of the day felt that they couldn't, you know, account for it or control it. It was all about control. I grew up in a police state, but it was very safe. It was lovely, obviously, if you were white, um, lots of other issues. And we played lots of sport. We had great... It was, it was safe and a wonderful sense of community. But being different, yeah, I've always, I've always, I've always felt that I was different. Yeah. And even at university, I found it difficult to, to deal with that. So a friend of mine talked me in 1984 into going to the LGB. I don't think the T was involved there. Yeah, with the gay and lesbian meeting. And there were guys outside waiting for us with baseball bats. Shut up. Yeah. So I never really went back. Did you get inside or? No, no. Just didn't. Didn't, didn't have the meeting. So, in fact, the, com the, the committee at the University of Cape Town didn't even meet that year. So, I can see why you like talking for an hour. Was, you were taking, we're going down paths I didn't even think about. Huh? You were going down paths I didn't even think about we were going to talk about. So that's interesting. Right. Oh, I turned it off, but it's still making noise. Maybe it is me. No, it's certainly not you, I promise okay. you. If you don't want to talk about any of this stuff, I'm, I'm more than I'm, happy to. I'm happy to talk about anything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, okay, okay. I just, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it was disinteresting. So. No, but I just find it, you know, I find it certainly when I look in, you know, in my own family and the people close to me who, who are gay and, you know, them talking about, you know, knowing like we went to an all-boys school and they, you know, kind of knew that something was different. All the boys on the bus would, you know, stick to the windows and when the bus drove past the girls' school and he just kind of sat there and didn't, like, what? I don't understand it. Well, I don't know why everyone's looking at, you know, but he was, you know, young, was quite young, um, still in primary school. But certainly not with the idea that to feel this way is a criminal act and, you know, that there's blokes with baseball bats waiting to, to, to in inflict violence upon you. Good Lord, that would have been, you know, how do you even experience your sexuality as a teenager, you know, when that's hanging over you? Well, as you know, I'm, I'm writing another book and you quite happily being involved, uh, participating in it, so it's very exciting, about anxiety and causes of anxiety. And, of course, growing up with that different sense of identity and being and feeling different from an early age certainly added, mm. if not caused, to most of it. So, uh, But also in those days, so we, we're talking about the 70s, so God, I'm God, 52 this year. It's... Uh, you tend to forget, I suppose, now that we've moved on so much. Mm. And I certainly say in the last 25 years, I've been a doctor for 27, so since 1990, the world, especially the, well, the Western world, has changed so much in terms of how it deals with things. So, for instance, when I first went to England, homosexuality wasn't illegal, but the age of consent was 21. Interestingly, and South Africa is full of ironies, 
homosexuality was illegal, but the age of consent for homosexual acts was 19. <laughs> so don't, don't even ask, you know, we had the morality police and all sorts of things. If you want to go down that Morality part, police. We had the morality police. So, so let me give you another little that story. that only happened in, like, Saudi Arabia. Oh, my God. No, we had the morality police. These were a bunch of perverts. Was that in Iran in the 70s? Yeah. And they could, they could, they didn't need warrants or any, anything. So they could, if they felt, okay, that you were engaging in homosexual acts or miscegenation, so, you know, that mixed race thing, so you weren't yeah. allowed to. So my mother, for instance, couldn't give my the uh, male gardener lift to the bus stop on her own. She had to have another person in the car with her. For, for instance, if you looked at the true interpretation of the laws in South Africa, I'm ca I kid you not. That's extraordinary. So they could come in, they could swoop. So, of course, they'd wait for people to have sex and then they'd just swoop into yeah. your bedroom, you know, making disgusting comments and, and cart you off to hospital. And I'll tell you one dreadful story. So in 1990, so I was in my final year at medical school and we, we did, we were student interns, right? So we worked quite a lot clinically in, in, in the hospital. And I was in the emergency department when people started sniggering. There was a story going around and two guys had been having sex, anal sex, and the one guy had gone into anal spasm. So the poor, and you can imagine, they tried everything before they called the emergency services. I'm guessing this involves some sort of sphincter clamping shut. Sphincter clamping shut while the other guy was still in him. So in they come to the emergency department. So the guys are almost going blue. So it's in a medical emergency. It's completely, so he needs to be a muscle relaxant, set free, whatever. Again, it went through the, out the whole department. And of course, as soon as they were parted, they were arrested in front of everyone in the emergency department and carted off to be charged because oh. it was illegal. Oh my! So that really helped me coming out. <laughs> uh, and the other, the other, you know, talk about HIV and AIDS. Yeah. So I remember having one, one sort of lecture on it in the late eighties. You know, things took a while. We had, apart from the morality police, we had the Afrikaans women's movement that dealt with the morality of the country. And we weren't allowed to advertise condoms because it would lead to promiscuity. Hence why it's a complete disaster. Sub-Saharan Africa is, it makes, me, it makes me want to cry thinking about how dreadful the consequence of that is. And, you know, one in four antenatal women in KwaZulu-Natal testing positive for HIV. Good God. Horrible statistics. Anyway, so you had all of this and you're trying to deal with uh, HIV at faculty level. And I was on the uh, medical student council and I was invited to a faculty meeting to discuss HIV. And the head of forensic toxicology at the guy was a wonderful man, gay, openly gay which in medicine at the time was quite a big thing. And he was, I mean, he was saying this is, a, this is a huge disaster for the world. And the head of the faculty, who was an arsehole, hate him, head of surgery, Professor de Blanche, who was an Afrikaans resistance movement supporter, mm. stood up and castigated him in front of the entire faculty of Cape Town University, which is, you know, one of the most prestigious universities in Africa, and said that it was a gay disease and that people deserved it. Oh, God. In 1990. So yes, maybe I didn't need to leave the country. <laughs> so, I'm, uh, so I'm guessing that when you when you hit London, it was a, <laughs> it was just like a, a, a 
What was it like? Uh, look, London, it's still, we just sold our flat there. I had it for 20 years, you know, you know, my life's in Australia now, but, oh man, London was wonderful. It was, it was great to be, look, it's great to be young anywhere. Yeah. But it's also great to have a, a sense of freedom and also anonymity. So, and that's partly what I enjoyed. So I went to London and I thought, fuck it, I'm just doing it. Yeah. And look, I'm still a conservative, anxious person, so maybe I could have... No, I think I had, I had quite a nice time. Oh, I'm grateful to hear that. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, when I see, you know, when I see like 14-year-old boys at all-boys schools coming out now, I'm just like... It's incredible. You, you lucky son of a bitch. You know, I'm like, I think about the, 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 the gnashing of teeth and the, and the you know, what it, what it must have been like. I mean, watching you know, those people very close to me do. So it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's more, I mean, it is more acceptable now. And I think in our community, and of course, there's a whole lot of different focus too. And the next, the next group, I think it's obviously still having problems is the transgender mm. uh, group. And what's amazing to me is having people at school then going, I'm transgender. I mean, that level of coming out in conversation mm. when I was at school, just, well, it, it's inconceivable. Well, well I'm, I'm grateful you made it out. I'm grateful you made it to London. Why medicine? Uh, short answer is my mother wanted me to be a doctor, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame my mother for these things. She, she, I, I was always interested in it. Actually, yeah. I was interested in the law and, and psychiatry. It's interesting, so ethics and human rights and the confluence of uh, behaviour and the law and psychiatry is something that I'm quite interested in and I uh, quite enjoy medical legal stuff. So that, that's an answer maybe to the next question, why psychiatry? But medicine, I always, I always wanted to be a doctor. I can't recall a time when I didn't really want to be. I had a crisis of faith, obviously, with being an anxious kid mm -hmm. at school and went and had a whole lot of testing done or whatever. I basically just said I couldn't work outdoors, which I knew anyway, or be an engineer. Um, and I enjoyed medicine, but also I was 17. So who the hell knows what they're yeah. really going to do or be when they're 17? I remember going through all these questions, why do you want to be a doctor? You know, save people. I don't know. What, what, what do you say? Mm. But I've always found it fascinating. And I must say, God, it's one of the most rewarding careers that I can imagine. I just, it, there's never a moment of regrets that I, that I have. There's things I wish I'd done or maybe or whatever, but I never regret being a doctor. My father, both my folks are doctors. Mm. My father is retired now, but towards the, like in the last five years or so of him practicing, he would say that, you know, he would get to work and by the time he saw his third patient around, he said around about 11 a.m., he said, it would feel like I'd just taken 10 milligram Valium. I just really enjoy helping people and it gives me such relief helping people. My dad's an anxious guy. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, helping people is a part of relieving the anxiety. I think it is, but of course, luckily I don't sleep well anyway because... <laughs> People don't understand, so my, my, my patients and I, you probably know, have a good relationship and I love travelling, so when I go away, they go, Jesus, not again, Mark. Oh, you, you do know that you're leaving me in the lurch when you're know, whatever, whatever. So we, well, you we, get on the phone. We, no, well, they tweet me and various things, okay. I, they, various things that, I, that I do with my patients. But 
what patients don't understand, or people who use services or, you know, have a psychiatrist long term, you're constantly in my head. Ah. Constantly in my head. Mm. So I lie there at night sometimes thinking, oh, shit, is that dose adjustment going to work? And I wonder what Lucy's thinking about the new medication. Is it giving her side effects? <laughs> <laughs> so people, you know, it's not... And sometimes, yeah, sometimes I have yeah. to take something to help my guy, me sleep. My guy has, has mentioned that uh, he never used to pay any attention uh, to certain things until I mentioned that they were my triggers. And he says, and now I just see them everywhere. <laughs> so thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I have an except. But I learned from my patients too. It's a two-way street. It's, a, it, it's amazing. Yeah. Because everyone, come on, in the world today, we're talking about how things have shifted in the last 25 years, but also with the advent of us using the internet, I am a Dr. Google interpreter. Yeah. I don't fight with Dr. Google. I'm glad they did that study recently that showed doctors actually do know more than Google. Thank you very much. Some, you know, 13 years of training does pay off. But you come to me with ideas or, or stuff that you'd seen on the internet, I can't just poo-poo it and go, oh, doctor knows best. So let's have a look at it together. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's right, but actually there's a lot of crap on there too. And that's what I'm quite good at, being able to go to someone and know that's wrong mm. and look at something together. And if you want to try something that's just come out, let's go for it. Right. You know? So certainly, uh, and it's most definitely something I've come to learn um, since I've been on um, various kinds of antipsychotics and stuff like that about how much... In the last 40 years, um, psychiatry and the treatment of those with mental illness in our society has changed. And I'm just wondering um, if you could just, for folks who, who don't quite realise, I mean, there's a, you know, there was for a long time this one flew over the cuckoo's nest view of this is what we can do. And people in my own family, this is all that they could do is that would go and put them in a, in a weird old Gothic building with echoey halls and poop on the floor and just leave them there because that's all they knew to do. And it's not quite like that anymore. Do you know the French Revolution in 1792, there was a French guy who took, who was the first guy to take the insane out of chains. So that was only at the end of, you know, this is the age of enlightenment for God's sake in the Renaissance. People still didn't know how to deal with madness. Going back to the 20th century, um, I won't give you a potted history, but that's also quite interesting. Generally speaking, 1950s was a big change because that's when medication, most medications first became available. So before that, lithium been around, but not really used that much because people did die from it um, before they realised blood tests were important or whatever. So anyway, uh, so you had asylum care. And I was lucky enough, in a way, to work in the late 80s, early 90s in the mental hospitals as they were being closed down. But a whole lot of studies had been done by that stage, moving into community care, but we missed something in between. So they, they improved their way of managing things from one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But this is an interesting thing, and I love history of psychiatry. There was a guy called Goffman in the, uh, in the States who went into the old bins he was a sociologist and he went in as a clean or, you know, some, you know, nobody, nobody notices. He was undercover. Uh, undercover. And after a year of working, he wrote the book called Asylum. It's a fantastic book to read. And he coined the term 
institutional institutionalization hadn't been around before so and that book was pivotal in most western governments going well we need to shift from that old mental hospital based way of care of looking after somebody incarcerating them basically and shifting it into more community focus and, and what was the what was the change you said medication was it was a big shift because near my house in brisbane where i live with my brother it's my brother's house i live there when i'm up there um and where our mutual uh, friend marg used to work is this full-on gothic on the river high ceiling bars on the windows kind of place that used to just echo with the screams of the insane and now it's all barred up so where did all those people go and how did that shift happen medication did play a part um obviously with side effects and various other things that we'll probably talk about later but um there was there was a definite shift in society and i suppose talking earlier about uh, homosexuality various other societal issues we've matured and people have gone well why should we lock people up ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Just because they have mental illness, various studies showed also they weren't more likely to be harmful or dangerous. And you can actually live in a more integrated way in society. So that that led to a big. There was a famous water, uh, not water go. Um, there was a famous speech by the Minister of Health in England in the 1960s, talking about this and shifting onto community care, and that was a big impetus to also in Australia to the old institutions being shut down and some very damning reports into institutional care at the time very damning by that you mean abuse of these people who uh who were unable to function outside given the current treatment of the world but the people that were working in these institutions abusing them and having no voice so we're talking about human rights and human rights abuses abuses which is interesting when you alluded to before and that you're interested where the law and, and psychiatry kind of intersect um in that you know at some point you're trying to look after a person who may not have the mental ability to protect themselves from being taken advantage of or or something like that and you're trying to i guess you're trying to look out for them where they you know can't look out for themselves in many ways it's a fine balance and you've got to get it right 
I don't, I'm not, sometimes, I'm not saying I get it right all the time, but you've constantly got to think about it. And at least now you acknowledge it as an issue and you're talking about capacity. So when somebody has the capacity to make a decision, like you and I are talking now, there's nothing affecting our sensorium, our way of thinking, our brain functioning. Mm. But even if you have a hit in the head, for instance, so people can understand more the physical aspect of things, or you have a sugar problem and diabetes and you go into a bit of a, a pre coma and you doing some odd uh, self-destructive or, or risky behaviour, there is capacity under the law to take you and keep you safe. Mm. Of course, that also feels to the person that it's being done to as incarceration. And you, as I say, you've got to manage this along the way. And how I've done it in the past is, you know, You've got to assess the situation. You can see that the person doesn't have capacity and if they are going to be out in the community, uh, they're going to be arrested themselves or others or their reputation. You wait until they're better to a certain point when they can have a com conversation with you about it and go, okay, this is the point where we've got to give you back yourself. You're ready to have that process, undergo that process and go back out there. In the old system, that process was even much more difficult and people ended up being incarcerated for decades. Yes. So, for instance, in the early part of the 20th century, again, if you were gay, if you were an unmarried mother, you could be locked up in mental hospitals. But people don't know that. If you look at the old acts, it was public lewdness, again, morality stuff, that was all uh, part of this sort of social control that we have to get away from. And you're not talking about South Africa, you're talking about... Oh, we're talking about England. System. We're talking about England. Good Lord, like earlier in this conversation, we talked about this really regimented policed society and here we are thinking, well, that was South Africa and apartheid, whereas <laughs> supposedly civil England uh, is doing just similar... Oh, good Lord. But again, looking at illness models, so, you know, you look at... Homosexuality was only declassified as a mental illness in the European classification, classification system, the ICD, in 1990. So you could be treated for homosexuality as a mental illness until then. And, and what treatments did they propose? Please don't mm. tell me they were plugging you into the wall socket and shocking your brains. Yep. Oh, fuck off. So that's part of it. There's also aversion therapy. We would have electric cables applied to your testicles and shown pornographic pictures and if you were aroused, you'd get a shock. Good God, what are we in? A Wonderful things that we did in the are name of a, psychiatry. Are we, a, are we in a Baghdad basement? I mean, like, what? This is the kind of shit that, that, that rebel leaders do to informants. It still happens in America, I'll have you know. Oh. Although America was interesting. So America, and a friend of mine's a psychiatrist in San Francisco. His father was this really cute, cool dude who used to have cocktail parties and stuff. He was quite a famous psychiatrist. And he sat on the, on the committee that uh, took uh, declassified homosexuality in 1973 yeah. in the States. So it was earlier there than uh, the rest of the Western world. It's a... Uh, you know, when you, when you think about the... Unfortunately, when you think about the... Um, the labels that people give mentally ill in our society it is a little, is still a little tarnished with that trope that you would see in the early uh, kind of 20th century in films like the men in the white coats are coming. 
And uh, certainly in the States, they have the 5150 and the 5250. The 5150 is a three-day involuntary hold and the 5250 is the two-week involuntary hold, which you spoke about earlier of, uh, you know, taking someone and, like, you can no longer look after yourself or we're taking you, it doesn't matter what you say. But um, that that is still kind of what people might conceive of when they think of someone with a mental illness or, or what might happen if I get a mental illness, the people in the white coats are coming. Well, it does happen. So every, uh, every state in, in Australia has different acts, but it's mainly based on the same sort of principles. So you have a, an emergency sort of schedule of the Mental Health Act to enable people to be kept, say, if they're under the influence of drugs or alcohol or head injury or acute illness, we're not quite sure what the hell's going on, to enable them to be held for further assessment. And treatment, that's the crux. So in England, Europe, civil liberties and human rights are much more advanced in a way than, than here. Um, and I joke with my medical students that they have to be nice to me because in New South Wales, for instance, and look, you know, a lot of this is about rural, regional centres not having access to psychiatrists or full care. So, you know, there's always a basic principle of the Act being in good faith. Mm. And obviously, hopefully no one abusing it. But you can be held under what's called the mentally disordered part of the Act for three working days in New South Wales. So Thursday before Easter Friday, oh, I can Lord. keep you till the next Thursday. Good God. And treat you. And that's on the basis of, say, an intern in the emergency department signing a schedule mm. and the registrar, so a trainee psychiatrist being on call on the weekend under the tutorship or mentorship or on the phone of a, of a psychiatrist um, holding you for that long and then being treated. But I guess that, you know, I've been to the uh, hospital here in uh, Sydney, the St Vincent's Hospital, um, uh, where uh, they have these two rooms, probably about the quarter of the size of this boardroom we're sitting in, like the size of a large bathroom stall with padded walls. Um, and they, I, the woman there told me they put them in um, because they were just getting so many ice, ice addicts, like people on just out of their brains on ice. Yep. Um, and and then, then then that kind of does bring me into the <clears throat> I uh, before I was properly diagnosed, I certainly experienced things that turned up in my illness uh, as an effect of taking party drugs, and um, it certainly does bring to the question of you know what are you really toying with when you start to explore you know what might be in that pill that someone passes you at a festival, or you know what happens if I smoke this pipe? You know what are you really opening yourself up to? Well, I'll answer that in the way of taking least risk. So anyone who's listening who wants to do that, organise before you go to festivals. I wouldn't take any drugs from somebody offering it to you, you know, on the grass. Yeah, but, but come well, on, but come man. On. <laughs> Everything's a great idea after six Smirnoff Blacks. Everything's, yeah, sure, I'll do a pill. It'll be great. It is, you know, I've got patients and, you know, who say, oh, Doc, I know, I know, this is my dealer, I've known him for years, he only gives me good shit, you know, whatever. You'd never know. <laughs> That's the problem. You never know what you, you're given. Yeah. And, you know, so I've been called a glorified drug dealer myself. So at least my drugs have been tested in some way, I suppose. <laughs> but it's the same thing in a way. But, you know, uh, yes, drugs, I, have, I am in favour and I have been quite clear about this of legalising uh, most substances. You know, alcohol, alcohol causes the most dreadful things in our society. 
domestic violence, death. You know, you can go to a, you can go, I'm sure you know, you can go to a festival of 10,000 people all in ecstasy. No one bloody kills each other, do they? So maybe we should move on to something else no, before no, we get no, into I'm, hot water. No, I'm fascinated. You know, it's, it's, I'm fascinated. Why, why, why do you, because, you know, there's going to be someone listening who may have someone in their lives that OD'd or, or once took an acid trip and they've never come back the same and they might be thinking, how could you possibly say that? It's a dreadful thing, but again, the way I practice psychiatry, and you've probably worked this out, you know, with capacity, we have will, we have free choice. Yes, for the most vulnerable people in our society, I believe there has to be a framework, I believe in a welfare state to a certain extent. But if people want to go and do things like take drugs or whatever, that's their choice. As long as, and this is the crux, they have informed consent. And in order for, say for instance, for me to start someone on, on drugs, on, on my drugs, medication, I need to tell you the effects that the drug's going to have, but I also need to tell you the side effects and the horrible stuff that might happen. Uh, otherwise, you're not truly informed. So in fact, anybody taking illicit drugs hasn't got that true informed consent because you don't know what you're getting and the only way you're going to be able to really know what you're getting is if it's controlled in some way and given the government sort of backing that's one of the issues and so when you're saying to legalize these things it is to have some sort of control quality over control oh. so you have a quite so you know what you're getting mm. this is the problem with a whole lot of herbal stuff or you, you don't know um Maybe if you take magic mushrooms, you get to know what, what they're like, you get a reputable source, but so much can go wrong. And now if you're talking about ice, oh God, that's a dreadful, dreadful drug. Uh, people can make it anywhere. They cut it with anything. And of course, you know, these aren't nice people. They want to make profits. So by the time it gets to the user, it's cut with rat poison and bleach and a whole lot of other shit. And it's dreadful. Ice is dreadful and it causes the problem with ice. Unlike other drugs, you only need a little bit of it to have a huge effect. Problem is the effect doesn't last that long, so you, t you use more and more. But you don't need, as with other drugs, that amount, so you don't build tolerance to it. So it's cheap, it's readily available, it's really destructive and awful, and it's easy to get hooked on. So. I've been told that if you, you know, just once is enough to change, you know, your brain chemistry, changing your pathways. But is that is that the case? Like, is can that happen? When you're looking at when you're looking at illness pathways, you're looking at genetics, your vulnerability to develop something. So, one of my really good friends, Canadian Indian family, his father's a physician. Him and his twin brother, when they were 17, smoked dope together. Or Ravi developed schizophrenia after that and he's still on clozapine. My friend Kimball didn't. And there's a family history of psychosis. So there's that vulnerability to developing something. And of course, some drugs are more potent than others. So if you're gonna take the hallucinogenic drugs, you know, they're pretty powerful stuff. And if you don't know the dose, you know, it can, can have an effect. But it's mainly, if I look at what's available now, it's ice. Ice yeah. can cause directly psychosis. So it's, it's, it's the real baddie of all of them. Yeah. So I will say that, and I've made no bones of the fact, and my patients on ice know this, I hate that drug with a passion. I hate it. I wouldn't think you're alone. 
I, I wouldn't think you're alone in that. It's it's quite a scourge. And it doesn't come from a moralistic, judgmental point of view at all. I don't come from that for anything, really, unless you hurt kittens and kids. That's about it. But, you know, uh, every, everything else I don't judge. You have to work with that. So how do you get that? What's the pathway to that? Is Does it start with testing kids? Does it start with... How does it start? Well, you have reputable manufacturers of, of the drug and... It can be sold in supermarkets or your <laughs> local pharmacy or little pop-ups on the corner. I don't, you know, that's, that's, that's not the most difficult part. It's getting conservative old people who run governments to actually acknowledge that times have changed and, you know, young people take drugs. Just to, you, you mentioned before, we've, we've talking about, talked about how, you know, quite awful ice is, but you did mention alcohol earlier. It's a very widely available, very socially acceptable form of medication for a vast degree of, uh, you know, subtle mental illnesses. And it works well for a lot of people. You know, another bit of um, history there from you, I assume from what you just said, but, and you used it in the past, haven't you? Oh, yeah. my God, alcohol was, and I told this to, we dropped our, our daughter the other night to a party there was a 14th birthday party. It was massive. There was about 100 kids there. And at a, um, uh, in the front yard of a house two doors down, there was all these kids pouring, you know, from the little bottle of vodka into the Coke bottle. No one's ever going to know, you know. And I, remember I was telling Audrey that when I was that age, when I was 14, that moment was suddenly when I took the drink from that Coke bottle with the vodka in it, Suddenly, I was no longer terrified of walking into a room full of strangers. Suddenly, I felt fantastic about it. And who wouldn't want that? You know, I'd grown up my whole life of being terrified of people I didn't know and so scared I wouldn't look anybody in the eye to, whoo, look at this, you know? And so, and that just continued through, through my life. And that's what I used. I used that particular drug, alcohol, to allow me to function. Uh, as I saw other people functioning. So, yeah, it was freely available. The problem became that, you know, the dosage that I needed became <laughs> incompatible with life. So I had to stop. That's the problem, that you build up tolerance to these things. That's the, that is the big issue. And alcohol, look, I like, well, I drink, so, and I come, and I have a, I have a strong family history of alcoholism. Um, it's interesting talking about stigma and use of language. I don't ever use the term alcoholic. Um, it's not useful, but somebody can become dependent on alcohol for various reasons, and that's why, again, I never judge that. Most of the people I see who've had alcohol, like you, in their lives, use it for self-medicating. It's a drug you reach for before someone gives you Lexapro. Absolutely. <laughs> or cannabis, or whatever people yeah. take. And, and I look, happen to use both. <laughs> well, and, uh, you're not going to get any argument from me for about the medical uses of marijuana, and that's been all of a sudden, you know, as you know, is a big thing in, in society and governments are grappling with how they deal with that right now. So alcohol, though, can also cause huge problems. And if you look at, if you go to a pub with alcohol, do a little bit of a social experience experiment. Go to a pub with alcohol, a pub with people taking ecstasy. Well, the brawls, the fights, the the issues are all going to be at the pub with alcohol. And you, you know, extrapolate that to a home situation where somebody's drinking and becoming abusive and hitting his wife, for instance. That's that's not great. But then you also look at 
why people use. And there have been some interesting studies now. So that whole thing about drug use is shifting too. So, of course, there's young recreational stuff. That's one thing. But why do people then get hooked on drugs and alcohol? And it's not so much that the drugs themselves make you hooked. Because people go in for operations, for instance, have morphine. They don't get hooked on heroin afterwards. It's more the social connection and that loss of meaning or lack of meaning in somebody's lives. So, again, don't judge is my take-home message, I suppose. So, when it... I mean, we have, we have diverted a little bit, but we're, you know, we're, since we're talking about, you know, medication and, and self-medication, um, at what point would people want to consider perhaps reaching out? You know, if people are listening to this and going, well, oh, I've only, you know, the only thing I know about psychiatry I've learned from Dr. Phil... Um, <laughs> who I kind of want to poke in the eye, even though I'm no, um, you know, violent man. I, I'm not happy with what he's done uh, as far as creating stigma. Mm. Um, but that's just my opinion. Um, you don't crank out 200 shows in 40 days and have had anything to do with what's actual reality. Anyway, um, people may have their only experience with psychiatry, not psychology, but mm. psychiatry may have only been through the tropes that you see in film and television, as in the men with the white coats and there's a, there's a guy with a cigar with a moustache and, you know, hearing voices and, and seeing things. And what would you say to people who, who may have related to anything that we've possibly been talking about? Where, where do you, where's the first place you might even put your hand up and or even notice that, hang on a second, that's, things aren't, don't feel right right now you know i'll answer that in a specific way and uh, we can talk about how to access services mm. and whatever but a lot of people have difficulty with that especially younger people but you i guess uh, let me rephrase it um my mentor when i first was going through the when i was really really sick he said the problem with crazy people is they don't know they're crazy and i know that's, that's a word you probably don't use but it really related to me because all my thoughts were absolutely perfect. Of course what I'm thinking is real. This is absolutely true. It's you who can't see it. And when you're stuck in that, it's very hard to think that you need help. There has to be an epiphany moment in a way. So yeah. they're different. You know, if you've got depression or anxiety, but even then people have difficulty coming for help, mm. talk to someone or somebody hopefully. And I think people are getting a little bit more okay with that, mm. going, are you okay? So people can go and ask you. Mm. But if you've got psychosis and there's certain types of psychotic illness like schizophrenia for instance where people don't have insight and it's very difficult as with mania too so it's not just psychotic illness so if you go bipolar and you're in a manic episode or you're taking drugs or doing various things you're not going to want to hear that you've got a problem you're so you're so sort of used to running away from it and that's that's part of the manic defense in a way so you didn't you're the least receptive at the time you just got to hope that there's a window somewhere and that somebody takes it or somebody's there for you when you decide oh my god i think i need to talk to someone now what about people who might know someone in their life who they think needs help what's the best path forward for them talk to them i have to say that I mean, it's not if you if you if you love someone or you know you're close to someone and that person values you they're not going to well, at first, they might be a bit defensive and to get out of their face or whatever. 
but persevere. And if it comes from a good space, and sometimes all you have to do is say, I'm here for you, I'm here for you, but I think you need some help. Often, you know, somebody, don't get, don't get into the nitty-gritty sometimes. It's just about initial contact and going, come on, I'll come with you. Let's go and visit someone or let's go to the doctor or let's go speak to someone. But again, when I, I can only talk about it from my experience because I'm the only one that, uh, that I, that's the only thing I can base it on. I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear from anybody. In fact, I, I got into a situation where I, uh, the very doctor that was trying to help me, I believed was in on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you're in that difficult territory. That, that is scary and that is difficult territory because you can't, you have to, as a doctor and the receipt, you, you sometimes have to wait and hope that the person doesn't self-destruct before they get help. So luckily you didn't. Often the first presentation to services is via the police. You yeah. get the police get called. That's the sad part of it. And also that, and that speaks to problems with access to services. So somebody is becoming unwell, the family knows, you know, hats off to carers, family knows things are going unwell. You call the local services, they come in, the person you're trying to help goes, F you. I'm fine. Two leave fingers, me alone. leave you me alone. Yeah. And the family are going, please, our son, daughter, you know, needs help, do something. And they go, um, well, we have to wait until they get to the point where they're risk to themselves or others because of the Mental Health Act. <sighs> the interpretation sometimes stymies me. And then you have to call the police. Then the police come and the person's so unwell at the time and give the police their due, you know, they're now more affair with domestic violence and trying, but they come in and this has happened to some of my patients. So they've become so unwell, the police are finally called because the parents or lovers or you know, husbands, don't, wives don't know what else to do. And then they get arrested, put in handcuffs and put in the police vehicle. And then sometimes the police will look and go, oh, that hole in the wall, did you just do that? And they go, yes. And then they get charged with malicious damage and then have to go to court after being brought through to the hospital. So talk about engagement issues. Anyway, that doesn't really help either. Far out. And in your opinion, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like being a 23-year-old cop a year out of the um, academy um, trying to deal with, I mean, I, I, again, some are better than others and some yeah. are better than others. Sometimes it's the older ones that are a problem. Sometimes younger people have a little bit more empathy. Well, at, at least, you know, that at least in this country, those encounters with police, if they are the first contacts, usually don't end with the person being shot. But in the States, that's pretty much what would happen. I've had patients lost in England like that. So oh, really? I had a patient who was naked, for God's sake, brandishing a table leg, and he was shot. Okay, the police were nervous, but it's not in this day and age, I suppose, because of terror and a whole lot of uh -huh. other factors. Um, not that I want to justify that, but it was very sad. It's incredibly sad for families who are saying, I've been asking for my son to get help for ages now, and then he does this and you shoot him dead. Oh man! Why can't look if we if we if we can blow dart a lion on the savannah and have them run around for a bit and then just fall asleep? Why can't we do that with people? 
I, I did raise that at a meeting once, I have to say, coming from Africa, but anyway. That Why wasn't. can't we use tranquilizer darts? Just boom, a lot of, a lot of allium, just poof, blow dart with a, the tube. <laughs> my point is, some of my patients, because they've been um, electric, you know, the, the sort of, what do you call those? Tasers. Things? Tasers. Yeah. <laughs> one, I shouldn't laugh, but my one, one guy was so pissed off. He wasn't pissed off by being tasered. But he was tasered and then it went through his new television and it ruined it. So he was suing them for, never mind that he was, you know, convulsing on the ground. He went, man, they ruined my new TV. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to help him write a letter going, please pay for his TV. Is a, uh, wh where do you see the ability, if there is an ability at all, to, I mean, what you do is very one-on-one. -on -one. You're, you can only ever see so many patients in a day. Is there ever going to be a way that you'll be able to do what you do at scale? And I know you've, you've, you've tried uh, and you've definitely done some fantastic work with um, the, the books you've written and the television that you've done. Is there any way that you ever would see an ability to do what you do at scale? That is actually one of the real challenges of 21st century working. So in my world, in mental health, in psychiatry, there's still not enough of us. So I work in Cremorne, one of my jobs is in Cremorne. I think there are more psychiatrists per capita there than in the rest of the country. Rural and regional Australia, sometimes in certain regional areas, is one psychiatrist for a million people. Wow. So there's a, there are a couple of things you can do. Yes, you can mentor and support, but also through technology. So we, we, we haven't really used telemedicine properly. So we're getting there and I'm quite interested in that. You can do Skype interviews. You, you can do, um, you can have discussions, and I've done this with senior nurses and GPs, one after another in that sort of way. So 10 minutes case discussion, little chat about things and go, yes, this is what you need to do. I quite like that sort of work, and I'm quite comfortable with that. I did, you talk about scale though, when, in South Africa when I first, so, I graduated in 1990, and in 91 I worked in a regional hospital in the Eastern Cape where my parents lived. I got the job, my father played golf with the medical superintendent, but anyway, so they gave local boys jobs. It was a great hospital to work in. The year after that, 1992, the apartheid, I told you, this was this fascinating time. The wards were open to all races for the first time, and this hospital was built in the 1960s. So you had the black side and the white entrance. The only corridors that connected was both sides was the, there were the um, kitchen corridor and the surgical corridor. And the psychiatry ward was on the white side, 16 beds. Anyway, open to all races. I took it over after my year of internship, learned everything from nurses. That's not pretty practical. And it was quite a seminal moment in South African history. But I also used to run community clinics through interpreters, so it was the old black service. I ran a clinic once, I kid you not, we got there at eight in the morning, I finished at four, I saw 84 patients through interpreters and I took a lung specimen from one and a couple of aspirated things and did some physical stuff as well and signed forms and various things. I, I haven't been able to beat that, I have to say. 84 in a day. 84, that was pretty full on. It's, it's a work output. So when I was head of department at Liverpool, and I'd be covering sometimes 45 beds, so that's 45 patients. But then you've got people, you know, your juniors or whatever to, to staff. So the registrar will come with a little clipboard and 
I go around seeing people in the ward and having a chat because you get to know what's important. If you listen to people, if you listen to your patient, you know, you can cut your time. You can cut your time drastically. Mm. Okay, what do you need today? What's leave? What's your medication? Did you sleep? Let's look at what we can do. Mm. So I can sometimes see, you know, 10 people in an hour <laughs> with a lot of coffee. <laughs> I'm trying to cut down. I've done done two cups today. I promised my wife I'd, I'd try and have a little less. Well, she's, I'm shaking. I'm probably going all over the bloody place. Well, yeah, she's like, <laughs> she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You take medication for anxiety and yet you keep pumping yourself full of caffeine. I don't understand it. It's like, yes, that's right. Now, please let me get to the coffee machine. You've got to have some vices going. That's all I've got left, Mark. <laughs> what would you say? I'm going to, uh, so we're, we're, we're coming into it, coming into the to the end here. But I, I just would like to to kind of wrap wrap this up with. Like, what would you say the biggest misconception is that the general public have about psychiatrists or psychiatry? There we are, men in white coats, and you know that. I think people still think there are padded cells. We don't have padded cells anymore. We do have seclusion rooms on locked wards, and that's, again, to really contain people. The use is monitored, and, and you know, we have committees now, and debriefing, all those sort of things. But the walls are, they, as you probably found in St. Vincent, they use a spongy material that you, you can't hurt yourself. Um, there's that to it. I think people still think we use straitjackets. People do say that to me. But the saddest misconception, and not helped by Hollywood, I have to say, um, including the latest film Split. Yeah. But anyway, is that people with schizophrenia kill other people. And media and media representation has not helped this. And on the one hand, you can see what sells newspapers. The eight people who kill themselves that day? No. The one person in the month who jumps into the lion's den at the zoo, that makes headline news, doesn't it? There's wonderful captions. That doesn't really help destigmatization and in, in discrimination. People act in a weird way or an unsafe way when they're unwell, and all of a sudden it's headline news and people, there's, there's a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of an issue there. But that's the main misconception. So people with schizophrenia, are at the same risk as the general population of causing harm to others. When they do, of course, sometimes it can be quite incredible and make newsworthy stories. But that's the main misconception. And after changing minds, I had some wonderful letters of support and I had from across, from psychiatrists to people with lived experience saying thank you for showing you know, people that we aren't all, you know, whatever you want to call them. And I had this mother write to me. She had two sons with schizophrenia. I've kept the letter. And she said, thank you so much for showing that my sons aren't psychotic killers. Both of her sons have schizophrenia. And are wonderful, warm, you know, quiet guys who just play video games. So there you go. Because I guess that's it. People <laughs> hear schizophrenic or he's, he's a schizo or he went schizo and they immediately think, uh, you know, bursting in the door with a chainsaw or a steak knife. Yeah. But that's not the case. And as you know, we sit on the board of SANE, and that deals with complex mental illness. And it's a bit like I was talking about earlier, gays and lesbians are more accepted now, and the new issue, well, the big issue now for a lot of legislators, whatever, is that trans 
and our transgender um, brothers and sisters. It's the same in mental health. So here I am writing a book on anxiety and you're comfortable participating in the book. I talk about my lived experience, as do you. But anxiety and depression have almost become, and of course there's complexity to that as well, but they've almost become more accepted in our society. People living with the more severe end of the spectrum, psychosis, bipolar mania, that they still have a huge issue and people still have you know, stigma and problems with that. And we've somehow got to work on that. I don't know if you agree with that, but I think that's what I think. So my last question would be that, do you feel that if, do you feel that there, that if, <clears throat> there's always gonna be like incredibly severe cases. Like for example, someone that presents with stage four cancer. All right, so the stage four cancer equivalent of, of mental illness, but that's going to be a sliver of the people that present. Do you feel that most patients now have the ability of living a fairly meaningful life, fairly okay life? I'll always answer that positively. I absolutely agree with that. And we just need to, in our society, we need to just get with the program, actually. So if you look at stats and all that, if you look at uh, psychosis, a uh, person can have psychosis once from drugs, but that's a statistic. So if you look at a lifetime prevalence of mental illness, one in four is quoted, but actually it can be one in two. All of a sudden, you've got nearly half the population having experienced their own illness. Then you've got the people touched by that illness. So each one of those people will have family and friends. I don't know anyone in our society at the moment who can actually put their hand on the heart and go, I know no one with mental health issues. I, I think it's ridiculous. So why are we still having all these issues and why can't we just be more open about it and go, hey, let's deal with this, folks. And that there is help? There's help and there's positivity and there's always, there's always, I hate the word normal, so I don't use normal at all, but there's normal for you. And people can really lead really good lives. Having said that, as you know as well, People with psychotic illness often don't have, you know, they don't have places to stay, they don't have connections, they have medications that make them put on weight, you know, sedentary lifestyles, they smoke, they have physical health problems, there's a real, and they can't hold down jobs and nobody wants to employ them. So we've got a long way to go, but there's no reason why those people can't actually be helped and feel included in our society. Well, wouldn't that be something if in your very lifetime you would have seen it go from what it was to, to that? There's always hope, isn't there? Yeah, so for 25 years, in 25 years, we've come huge, we've come so far. And come, have you seen the guy, the, the, the doctor being dragged off the, oh. the flight? You, these, people all have phones. We all have means of sharing things and, mm. and, and, you know, being connected all the time. That's the positive thing. You can't get away with all this stuff now. You can't. Nor yeah. should you. Um, thanks for your time, man. I know you're a busy guy with a sick dog. <laughs> I know. God, what do you do? You're talking about pets. People with mental illness, get a pet. It really is good for you. It's really good for you. Any studies show, especially in depression, even psychosis, if you're looking after somebody and you have somebody, something in your life, like a dog or a cat, man, it makes a huge difference. And they're mind dogs now, you know, so they're, they're
the emotional uh, dogs that help with the emotional um, illnesses. I've got a couple of patients who are actually now allowed on the train with their mind dog. They almost have the same they have the same status as guide dogs. Really? Yeah. Hey. And they're, they're almost a, they are a bit of a poster child for mental illness because all the kids go, "You're not blind. Why you got a dog?" And this is a patient of mine who hadn't left her house for four years. All of a sudden, she's got a dog and she's taking public transport. And she said, yeah, it's okay. At least, they, at least they're kids and they want to know. And that's quite cool. So you be an ambassador wherever you go. It's great. But yeah, pets. But yeah, we've, uh, we've got a Frenchie and developed epilepsy. And he had a major fit last night after not actually being having one for ages. It was crap. So my sleep wasn't brilliant. <laughs> well, thanks. Never for is. Thanks for pushing through, man. <laughs> and it's great talking to All you. Right, I'm just going to take your photo real quick. Sure. That's Dr. Mark Cross. If you like him and you liked what you heard there, please let him know. Find him on Twitter at Dr. M. Cross, D-R-M Cross. You can find him there and find out more about what he's up to. He's a lovely man and he does really great work. And uh, if you want to find out more about SANE Australia, S-A-N-E dot O-R-G, SANE dot org. Thanks to everybody that helps support the show on Patreon. Once again, if you want to get those exclusive episodes, patreon.com slash Osher, a big thanks to Andy Marmer, audio producer, and Haley Van Spania, my production coordinator, for helping me make the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Once again, if you like the show, please let someone know, grab their phone, show them how to listen to a podcast, and download an episode that you think is your favourite that they'll resonate with the best. That'll be a really great help to me this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.